Diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives in the workplace are pretty common these days. Businesses without a DEI strategy are seen as out of touch and not inclusive. It just doesn't make sense these days to not practice diversity and inclusion. But just because a company says they have DEI initiatives doesn't mean they walk the walk. Just because they invite you to the party doesn't mean they invite you to dance. In this episode, I sit down with Gigi, who is an HR professional based in Auckland and does a lot of work around DEI in the workplace. We talk about the problem with the concept of leaning in, society's obsession with extroverts, and what true DEI looks like. It's really nice to have you over. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Great. So I can start by talking a little bit about my background. So I am originally from Hong Kong. I was born in Hong Kong and I've lived in New Zealand for about 25 years, if that is accurate. So I think myself of myself as um, Hong Kong is my home. New Zealand is my home. I'm Hong Kongese and I'm very much a Kiwi as well. So in Hong Kong, I grew up in an environment where, you know, the traditional cultural values of your parents work extremely hard. So I'd say they worked a minimum of like 78 hours per week at least. I had no time to see them. We never really had much family time. So we had a maid that mm. looked after us. That's quite common, right? Very common. So most families are, you have a maid and parents worked. You probably saw your parents once a week, some once a month. I saw my dad once a month most oh, wow. times because when I'm asleep, he comes home. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's just that value of um, money. If I bring money home, I give my kids good education, a good upbringing, very traditional values. And he was a very traditional um, dad as well. So it's all that do what you're told. Mm -hmm. I'm your parent. Um, saving face is important. Regulate your emotions. Don't throw tantrums. Just don't be rebellious. Yeah. Just do what I tell you. Yeah, basically. <laughs> that sounds very familiar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, cool. And then how old were you when you moved to New Zealand? And do you know why you moved? Yeah, so I was nine when I came to New Zealand. And the reason is that my mum's family actually came to New Zealand and they went lived in a small area called Wadarapa. Mm. So um, they lived in three different towns, Greytown, Carterton and Masterton. So in the South Island? Nope, southern part of the North Island. Oh, man. Yeah. This is how bad <laughs> my New Zealand geography is. I actually don't know where the Wadarapa is. <laughs> oh, no. Well, Peter Jackson apparently has a home in Greytown. Okay. <laughs> it's a beautiful place and it's quite up and coming as mm -hmm. well. Um, so... We, I lived there for uh, uh, several years and, you know, moving from a concrete jungle to like a town. <laughs> so traditional as well. I had two aunties who owned fish and chips Chinese takeaway yes. shops. <laughs> so I won't go into talking about them. And then my other uncle who owned a veggie farm. So I lived oh, with cool. him during mm -hmm. school terms with my brother. And then I lived with my other auntie who um, owned the fish and chip takeaway during holidays. So it was just a really great experience from you know coming from this concrete jungle where I actually didn't know much about Hong Kong it was all just school home a McDonald's close by <laughs> study study yeah. you know there was no fun you you mm. weren't allowed to do anything except you know we'll ride our bike inside the home played soccer inside the house wow. and that was a very traditional confined space to say you stay at home you're not allowed to do anything else and coming to New Zealand, Wadapa, my cousins, they were all pretty much third generation. So they didn't speak Chinese. Mm. Um, they didn't really understand the Chinese culture. So for me, it was, oh, it's, 
It's this is very interesting.、Mm. Everyone was so welcoming, though. I loved my time there, and I'm very, very grateful for having spent my first few years in New Zealand in a little town that was so welcoming. Learn the New Zealand culture. Learn to speak English again. I studied English all through when I was from Kindy, and I thought I could speak English. But when you actually speak English, it's very different. Yeah, it's yeah. very different. Like the the practical and the theory is very different, right? Exactly. That's really great to hear that you had such a positive experience coming to New Zealand because I think there is that kind of like negative perception of small towns、mm. in general being、mm. really closed minded and kind of. Gossipy and that、yeah. kind of stuff, but that's really great that you didn't have that experience. I think probably because I was young,、mm. very you know, kids, everyone gets along with everyone, just doesn't matter. My cousin though, she came here when she was a bit older, so she felt very different. She hated it, or、well, she returned and went went、right. back to live in Hong Kong. Whereas. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough,、yeah. fair enough, and not having to ride your bicycle inside your apartment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.、Um, okay, and so after that, you moved to Auckland, or yes. So it's always been on my mum's plan to migrate to New Zealand、um, for you know our future and all of that. Very、mm. traditional values again, but she chose Auckland. Reason being is the work she was with. She works for an airline. They had an, an opening for her, so she came to Auckland, and I. Moved up to Auckland with her first,、uh, without my brother, and my dad was still in Hong Kong because he ran his own travel business. My experience in Auckland, as I've talked to you before, was very different to、mm. the small towns in New Zealand. That was the first time in my life ever that I learnt that I would be treated differently because I look different, and that's、mm. never happened before. So very typical. The <laughs> comments you get like "ching chong ching,"、mm-hmm. um, "go back home," all of that is. Wow. Okay, I've never experienced it. Do you remember? Maybe not the first instance, but one of the first instances where you had that realization that、yeah. people were going to treat you as if you were different to them. Yeah. So I remember going into the classroom. At, I would personally, I was surprised to see so many other Chinese students、mm. because in the school I went to in the small town, I was the second Asian student they had, and. Certain students would just walk past you if you say hi, if you smile at them, they just totally ignore you.、Mm. And it's that sense of I feel invisible, which I can ignore. And then the other side is then people making comments that I can't couldn't ignore. I dealt with it in a way that I would not recommend anyone to deal with. <laughs> But I guess as a kid, it's kind of like you don't want to be seen as the odd one out, so you blend in by doing the same things. So I. Hated being Chinese, and I did whatever I can to not associate myself with that culture.、Um, I would make jokes of Chinese people, the Chinese culture. I even bullied Chinese students, and that's how I blended in. I think it's me deflating my anger of you treating me differently because I'm Chinese on other Chinese students. And one day I just realized, what am I doing?、Mm. And I decided to stop doing that. And of course, my friend group changed,、mm. which. Was probably for the better, and I was more curious about cultural differences and got to know different people from different countries, and that actually started my kind of、um, interest in. Huh. So、mm. we are different, but we're all quite interesting and unique in our own ways,、um, in a more positive lens. Yeah, it's quite a common experience for、mm. a lot of us. I think growing up feeling different and then wanting to. 
not feel so different and so you adopt the behaviors Mm. and thinking of the people around you exactly which then leads to a lot of issues around you know your own racism towards yourself Yourself. (laughs) and like other people like you so would you say that it took you a long time to dismantle that definitely or through I think it didn't start you know in terms of dismantling even you know even though I was curious about other cultures and I wanted to learn more about myself it wasn't really until I entered the workforce Mm. where I learned hmm some of these virtues from our Chinese cultural heritage and my upbringing are actually disadvantages for me and that at the same time it's also an advantage for me so I didn't realize that until I started working you know if I think about talking about leaning in from a gender perspective as a woman I was Asian um I have to lean in in different ways and different people on the different journeys have to lean in different ways. So if I imagine we're on an obstacle course of leaning in, I'm running two paths at the moment. I would expect when I get older, it would be another path as well. So it's the woman path and then the um, Asian path, um, which was very, has been interesting. Yeah, I'd love to explore that idea of leaning in in different ways. Mm. But first of all, maybe, are you able to explain for those who don't know what leaning in means? Right. So leaning in is, uh, Cheryl Sandsberg um, wrote a book about lean in, and it's actually her perspective of being a woman leader at Facebook. How did she go about putting her voice across? And, you know, it's all about being at the table. So you have a place at the table but being able to say things and be heard at the table and more people need to do that. I think again, is that gender stereotype where typically speaking, there are more male leaders versus female leaders. And we need to, as females, lean in more and say we need that opportunity, vocalize our needs and actually fight for it Um, in a way where, you know, not saying that this is unfair and it's unreasonable, not in that way, but prove that we all have a place to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think one of the criticisms that I've seen of what Cheryl talks about is that it comes from a very privileged white mm. female perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where what you were saying about leaning in in different ways yeah. comes in. Yeah, definitely. Different layers. Um, and I must say, you know, she also talked about children and that's very typical of females if they have children, childcare, all of that, all the other stuff. But leaning is much more than that. If we think about race would be one, age group would be one, class, we're not even talking about people who have access needs. So this is kind of thinking about the term of intersectionality, where a person, when you look at them, you know, I might look at you, Taya, and go, you know, female, Asian, at this age, I have this perception of who you are. And it's most likely not accurate. Mm. So it's really understanding more about that person and then that person actually being able to have a safe place to vocalize certain things to lean in. And for yourself, what are some of the ways that you have had to learn to you know, find yourself at the table and yeah. lean on yourself. So as I talked about my dad being very traditional, keep your opinions to yourself, regulate your emotions, just really don't say what you really think. When I started working in um, working, really, I was someone who is 
who just sits in the room and meeting room, I observe, I listen, and I may not necessarily provide any input, not because I'm not actually interested. I am listening. It's just one. I'm actually quite happy with how the conversation's going and the decision that's been made, or I don't know how to constructively phrase my statement, what's going on in my mind. And it wasn't until when I worked in professional services, um, when I've talked to you about is I felt like a small fish in a big ocean and no one gave me that feedback. You know, everyone was saying you're, you know, they considered me as a high performer because of my work ethics. I got the job done. I was, um, supportive with, with to other people. I worked well in a team. I was driven, all of that. But what is stopping you, Gigi, from being great is actually you need to share what's going on in your mind. So I remember a partner and a manager at different times and different connections to me came to me and actually took time to give me that feedback, which I really appreciate and said to me, I see when you're in meetings, your your brain is working. You're thinking about a lot. Trust that when you're invited to the room, you have a space to speak and that we want to hear from you and that what you say will add value. And that was a light bulb moment for me. And I didn't actually realize that deep inside, I felt I needed permission to say mm. things. Yeah, I feel like that's also another very relatable and common feeling. Yeah. I don't know if it's just us Asian women or if it goes beyond that or just women in general. But yeah. do you also know the term of the bamboo ceiling? No. So it's been talked about a lot in terms of what's been happening with the anti-Asian mm. racism, especially in the US at the moment. But it's kind of... Um, goes to that model minority myth as well, mm-hmm. where Asians are seen as hardworking, put your head down. Great at math. And yeah. I'm definitely not good at that. <laughs> oh, me neither. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think the other <laughs> night we went out for dinner and the total came to something like 164, 128 or something. And it was a nice, even number. Yeah. And I was trying to divide it by four and I was like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> yeah. So embarrassing. Um, but no, so, um, yeah, so Asians are stereotyped as that, and so they'll get pretty far in a company, but they'll only be able to get to a certain point Yeah, because it's kind of that you are only allowed up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, you're seen as not leadership material. Exactly. And it's actually that piece around the, the virtues that are so embedded – for some reason, you need permission from others to say, oh, you know, it's actually okay. Mm. And I would prefer you do that. And I remember for me, that moment was true. Why do I think it's not okay? And actually, at the same time as I was surprised, really? You want me to really share what I think? Did it take you a long time to get over that? Absolutely. I'm still learning. Yeah. So sometimes I still sit and listen because I can't constructively phrase what I'm actually thinking in a mm. way they will not you know that that could still be mildly offensive but you just kind of learn to structure it um, in a more diplomatic way and so the feedback now I get is you're very diplomatic and it's because if I don't structure what I say carefully it will just come out as things like wow are you serious that was mm. that's the most ridiculous comment I've ever heard mm. or I can't believe you just said that you're such an idiot. Yeah. Do you also feel like personality types come into it as well? Yes. Because uh, just speaking for me personally, I'm not someone who is used to saying my opinion either. Mm. Um, and I 
depending on the size of the room as well, yes. it changes. Yeah. So obviously with like a one-on-one, it's much easier. But if there's like 50 people in a room, it's a bit scary. I think over time I have learned to probably because of that feedback. And one of the managers, she was actually a uh, learning and development, organizational development manager. So she gave me more opportunity to facilitate. So if someone saw that potential in me and said, why don't you facilitate? So I started doing facilitation. I really enjoy it. And I sometimes actually, for me, is I feel very com- comfortable having one-on-one conversations and in larger groups. But when it's a very small, connected group, I actually find that more challenging. Mm, I get it. Yeah? yeah I totally get it. Um, yeah, because I was actually thinking about this the other day, and it's only a recent realization, because I always knew that I was much better one-on-one with people, mm. and I always thought small groups were better for me. But actually, I prefer either one-on-one or really large, yeah. like hundreds of people, yeah. where I don't know anyone. Yeah. But that sort of really small to medium sized group like maybe six to ten people Mm -hmm. especially if they all know each other as well it Mm -hmm. actually is probably the place where I'm the quietest yeah I feel the same quite interesting it is do you also feel like it's society's obsession with people who are more extroverted so the louder you are the more confident you are yeah so reflecting on this actually um I was thinking preparing for the podcast I was thinking about how did I come to terms with being more comfortable with who I am. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've heard about the loudest duck. Traditionally speaking, um, Chinese cultures don't be the loudest duck in the room. And I remember, so I'm going to take a step back to continue that first question you asked. How did I start working through this is I worked with a coach. So I actually got coaching myself to find out what are my limiting beliefs, including what do I hate about myself that I can't change and starting to embrace some of that personality and feeling more comfortable in my own skin, really, in a way. And I actually remember working with you and us, one of the coaching project manager for our conference, and we invited you to present. And I was so excited to have a, <laughs> you know, an, an Asian woman media person presenting about brands and that's the environment I want to create. Um, so for me, when I did coaching, I loved it so much. I ended up learning to be a coach myself to become a certified coach. And as I worked with different people, so one of the biggest things I love working with people on is what are your limiting beliefs? And there's so many leaders. And when I mean leaders is they are titled a manager or you are responsible for leading a group is they feel the exact same insecurities. Mm. And some of them who talk to me, uh, more, you know, I, I enjoy detail. I don't really enjoy the chit chat. I wouldn't say anything if I don't feel I have value to add or just seen as, you know, this person's very amicable and friendly and all of that. And so they lack confidence. Mm. And that's a interesting definition to think about. What are some of the other common limiting beliefs that you hear from leaders? Yeah. Most leaders I work with are coming to me with that type of style so it's the business belief that this person has so much potential they just need to do things rather than ask for permission or question their own confidence um, you know the term confidence then gets thrown in quite a lot um, and also other things would be would be like how do I how do I still be who I am without having to be the loudest person coming into a room going, good morning, everybody. How is everyone doing? You don't have to do that. So it's finding that 
uniqueness in them and for them to be comfortable in themselves. And I remember, you know, one of the book I read is that I recently came across in the last two years. I quite enjoy reading her resources is an author called Megumi Mickey. She's um, in Northern Australia. Her book is called Quietly Powerful. So she talks about, you know, people who have traditionally um, introverted traits are seen as uh, quieter, you know, don't talk in the meetings. Um, we don't hear from them. They, they're not leadership material because what happens is in meetings, when that happens, other people just talk over them. And reality is that happens because we're all so busy with that dialogue in our own mind, for one. Secondly, we're all so busy hearing. We're not listening. People don't have time to listen. So how many times have people butted in on your conversations and just said, hey, I know exactly what you mean and this is what you should do. And before you can even say, no, 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 you've missed the point, they've already jumped to another statement to say, when this is this done, this is what's going to happen. And people see that as, oh, leadership, they're driven and all of that. That's not how we should define it. Mm-hmm. You know, they think that's confidence versus someone who's a bit more needs more time to process that's lacking in confidence. That's not the truth at all, I don't think. Yeah, definitely. And I can totally extrapolate everything that you said to a more social situation as mm-hmm. well, because I have always felt a lot of pressure both in work and also social situations to be more energetic than I actually feel inside. Cause I am mm. introverted. Mm. It doesn't mean that I don't like being around people. It's just people are draining to me. <laughs> and so I remember sometimes forcing myself to somehow gather that energy that's not there yeah. to walk into a room and to be chatty yeah. and like bubbly we're actually inside you're just like I just want to go for a nap <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like in any context anyone who feels like that and they feel like they have to meet some sort of standard mm. of what they should be seen as mm-hmm. it's extremely tiring mm-hmm. so that is a different layer as well around that personality styles um because thinking about COVID, so many people are saying Zoom fatigue. Some people just want their me time. Some people want to have, let's get together and connect. It's different for everyone. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So being accepting of, I don't need to be 100% to everyone. Reality is you will not please everyone. And mm-hmm. I think that's the whole virtue is if you keep your mouth shut, you do what you're told, you're not rebellious, you regulate your emotion, then this is, you're good and you're a good citizen, a person, by not offending others and getting positive feedback or saying, um, I'm pleased about what you did. And I think that's such a shame. Mm. So over time, I've learned to say, well, I, I am who I am. And um, if certain people do certain things or they want to go to certain events and I don't want to, and that's fine. It's like, well, yeah, I, I'm being true to myself. And do you feel like changing your mindset around that has really helped you career-wise as well? So much. I, you know, that permission part was the first step. And then for me to think I could do some coaching for others as well is another step. And then it also helped me in my role where when I have confidence, and this is my definition of my confidence and myself and believing that whatever I'm doing and giving you as an output is to the best of my ability, then that's what I would see as good. So take it or leave it in a way. 
That's really helped me in my career. I have been able to not just think about, right, I, um, I'm going to be here in, the, in this organization forever. Um, I'm not going to say what I really think. All of that is you just, I don't want to live a life where I put myself really in a jail that I set up for myself. And because of those feedback, the conversations, the experiences and people really encouraging me to go, hey, try this. I see this in you. I think that's been really important. You're specifically very passionate about diversity and inclusion. Mm. Um, can you tell me more about that interest and um, I guess your journey with it so far? Yeah. So I think with diversity and inclusion, a lot of people now call it DE&I, diversity, um, e- equity and inclusion, but I'm just going to refer to it as D&I for the sake of uh, our conversation today. I think it's because of my experience, you know, growing up and learning at about 11, <laughs> at the age of 11, I'm different and it's nothing to do with what I say, what I do. It's just purely because of how I look. That's triggered that interest, but that interest never didn't flourish into anything. And that need to seek permission before I speak really held me back from doing anything about DNI. And it's not until more recent years where in the HR profession, there's more talk about DNI. Um, that I have the opportunity to talk more about it. The business I'm in at the moment, we're a global business and I'm so privileged to actually be able to lead it for the group. Mm. So we started piloting DNI as an initiative in our team in the US. As cliche, cliche as it sounds, you need to have leaders who believe in it, that they really buy in and they want to do something about it. And I was very fortunate enough, the male leader, he's white, male he bought in and he saw the value and he really encouraged all the managers to get on board and then also very privileged to have a small group of committee members over there to lead it so the other leader who co-led uh, or is actually still co-leading the initiative with me she is a um, black female manager again really amazing to work with and just the team some people are so passionate so we have champions they put their hand up to be champions it's just you don't need to know a lot about it. You just need to be curious. That's all we ask for. Be willing to do the research. So we might talk about a topic like intersectionality. Give them some links, you know, like Deloitte researchers, McKinsey researchers, and they'll go and have a look and go, great, I'm going to come up with some slides. What do you think, Gigi? And we work on that. And the team is, I'm actually very surprised at how well received the initiative has been and more people want to do more. And now I'm like, I don't have enough time (laughs) to look at that. Oh, that's great though. Mm. Um, Especially being in such a supportive environment as well. And you know, even though you said it was kind of cliche yeah. uh, about the leaders thing, but that's really, really important because so important. all the decisions start and end mm-hmm. with leadership. Exactly. So that's great to hear. I'm really curious to know more about your thoughts on how you think New Zealand companies in general are doing, because I do hear and I do see as well myself a lot of sort of hypocrisy around DNI, yeah. like you get companies that say, yes, like we're all for diversity and inclusion, but then you look at, I don't know, their company website, mm-hmm. it's like one Asian, like mm-hmm. one brown person. Mm-hmm. I think we will see more what I would call real data later on. So now the data we get is really just how many organizations have a DNI initiative. Um, in terms of the value that DNI offers, we, we don't really see that yet. And we'll actually know what is real versus what is a tick box exercise further down the track. And your point is 
really something I think about a lot is companies jump on things. It's cool. And we do it. Everyone else is doing it. We'll just do it without really understanding, well, why do you want to do it for your business specifically? And what does it mean for it to be successful in your business? So what happens is probably in a lot of professions as well, including my profession is let's look at ROI. Is there a template of questions and assessment scales we can use to assess it? It's actually different for every organization. One thing I say to my uh, team in the US when we work together is that, you know, that quote, you're being invited to the party, that's diversity, but inclusion is being invited to dance. So it doesn't matter if you, you can mandate diversity by going, I need 10% people of, of color. You might want 10% of people who have access needs, 50% of females in a certain role, those kind of things. That's just a tick box. People will know when they are actually at that party. How do I really feel about you? What do you think about policies, for example, around hiring, having that, for example, 10% quota Mm. and making their decisions around like, oh, we have to hire X amount of women or Mm. whatever it is. Do you think that there's anything inherently wrong with hiring based on that? Mm. I think it would be very narrow-minded to purely look at that number. That's why we need to go back to what is the why So why is it that we don't have females in those leadership positions, say tech companies, for example? Why is it that we don't have enough females in the profession at all? You know, when you look at data, you see the same amount of women, if we just look at gender at the moment, women mean coming into the same job, but women over time for various reasons, mostly stereotypically family reasons drop off and they don't get to a certain point because they are a full-time job that lasts for life looking after kids but it doesn't mean that males don't encounter the same issues too so some men are also parents right and single parents or they have a lot of family responsibilities but generally speaking the society is men work women look after kids that's how it works and that that kind of token approach that tick box exercise doesn't work because you will only hire people for the sake of hiring to fit that box. My belief is still you hire the person who's right for the job. So some conversations I've been having with managers and outside organizations is, well, Gigi, what do you think? You know, if this person spoke a certain language or if this person is of a certain gender, would you just hire them over the other person if they have the exact same experience? My question back would be, well, do they have the exact same experience? Which one do you think is better? And if their comment is, I think this person is more confident or this person's a superstar, define that. What is superstar? What is that X factor? What is it? And actually understand this is, this is why I've made the decision. It may be that I don't hire the person who's female. And this is my valid reason. But if it's that sense of, oh, my gut feel just tells me and the person will fit in. So the whole cultural fit is don't think about culture fit. It's culture add to the business. Then do that. This is totally off on a tangent, but I have been reading online some people bringing up, especially especially around startups, mm-hmm. um, that uh, tendency of companies sometimes to describe their culture as like a family mm-hmm. and a lot of people criticizing that. Mm-hmm. I'm really keen to hear what you think as like someone who works as an HR professional. Is it a bad thing to describe your workplace as like a family? Mm-hmm. I think the this pitch of, hey, we were like a family is 
come to the party and you're invited to dance, but also realize that the cousin over there or I might treat you differently because we don't enjoy the same drinks. And that's just the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Because I personally always thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to work in a company where everyone treats each other like family? But then I was like, <laughs> but not everyone treats their family well. So no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And sometimes when you do want that me time, it's go away I don't want to talk to my family <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and sometimes we are our we are our worst selves to our mm, families as well very very true okay so back to your um work in diversity and inclusion mm. um you mentioned in your preparations about how that developed under Black Lives Matter yes that was very interesting because I remember you know when I talked about that coal leader the manager female black manager who who i've been working with she's just amazing and i'll tell her to listen to this podcast too she'll (laughs) love it um she connected with me and said hey Gigi, i think we need to do something the media is so focused on the violence and and riot and and really deep down for her she actually has the same concerns for her for her family will they come home safe will they be stopped by the cops just because of how they look and that for me is so sad I thought at the time my response was appropriate. I was 110% supportive, if not even more than that. But it wasn't until the um, Asian hate increased because some people termed COVID as the Chinese virus that I was able to experience, wow, how insensitive I was in my way of supporting her. Mm-hmm. And why I say that is when she told me about Black Lives Matter, all I could think about at the time was also the riot that was going on in Hong Kong. People Mm. focus on the violence. Well, can't they just be a good citizen and not riot? But we forget that there is anger, the outrage, and the sense of hopelessness that if I am going to not see a future anyways, what am I going to lose except my life for some people? So that's quite extreme, which is quite sad. But it's all about taking action and really I just want to be listened to don't just ignore me and be invisible. So I haven't apologized to her yet. I think I should. <laughs> Maybe this can be your public <laughs> apology. My public apology to her is um, I felt like, so there was, I'll just talk about a little pot, um, TED Talk that I watch as well. It's Jodie Ann Berry's. Her TED Talk is the myth of bringing your full authentic self to work. And we have this whole talk of come bring your whole authentic self to work. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting TED Talk. So her example was, come to my Halloween party. Don't need to wear a costume. Just dress in whatever you want. So rock up in jeans, T-shirt, for example, and people are all in their costumes looking at you going, what the hell are you thinking? Mm. So that is very important to think about you're invited to the party, but everyone at the party have to do their part to make you feel invited to and be true to themselves that they can be different. And for me, is when I spoke to her, I had all these concerns around, well, what about political differences? It's not okay to talk about that right at work, all these other things. But when I experienced the um, that change with the Asian hate situation is some of the questions for me is, or comments that I came up for myself, is the reality is the issue won't go away. <laughs> so some, some people have to do something about it. Some people can choose to just switch off from the news, but that's the a really painful reality that many have had to experience and will continue to experience for decades. So treating it as a casual conversation isn't enough. 
and thinking that diversity and inclusion is all nice and positive and there's no discrimination, there's no racism, nothing like that. You're not looking at diversity and inclusion in a full picture. Talk about racism. Racism exists, but that doesn't mean that white people don't experience challenges. So it's different from saying, you know, have conversations with people saying, let me talk about how I think white privilege doesn't exist. And it's not about that. And I've been also been very fortunate to have really close friends who are white, who have talked to me about, you know, I do understand this racism. How can I help? Those kind of things. And I'm not here to debate whether white privilege exists or not. I'm just here to say racism exists. So what can we do to fix it? Then in political views. So, you know, COVID has been very political in a way. I agree to accept my view. That person can have their own views and we just agree to disagree. Yeah. And that's just what life will be. And then the main thing actually that I learned is, and this is what I said to her, it would be so good if you had a casual conversation so people know what to say to support you and um, the black community. And actually, you know, that was so insensitive of me. Um, maybe others didn't feel that way. Maybe she didn't take it that way. But for me, it's like that TED Talk, you know, it's not up to me to educate you on what to say. It's not my responsibility to change when I already feel challenged by these barriers we share this world we all have access to information and we can learn about it and we can learn by trying things asking things yeah yeah and i love your honesty around that because i think like for a lot of us who are still learning and going through the process it can you know sometimes we might say the wrong thing Mm -hmm. but with not you know not with bad intentions exactly you know once you educate yourself and you learn more then you will change how you think about things and I think it's really important to be open and honest about that process as well because (laughs) nobody is born knowing everything Mm -hmm. even the people that you might look up to who Mm -hmm. talk about diversity and race and all that kind of stuff they have also had to go through that process so yeah no thanks very much for being open about that Mm -hmm. So how do you think organizations in general can do better in terms of diversity and inclusion? Yeah. First thing is don't do it if you are only looking at it as a tick box exercise. People will go to that party and they will know you're lying. The damage it causes is much greater than any value they'll get. So if it's a token tick box initiative, just don't bother starting If the business has an interest in starting even in little pockets, give it a go and maybe start pilot groups, get some people on board. And the more people learn about it, and it's a piece around learning about yourself, then people start being involved and they want to do, they want to be involved and make a change as well. If you do have an initiative, really encourage you to think about the why and what is the return on investment for your business, not a template set of assessment questions because you want to see the benefits. So from a business of obviously you want to look at the commercial perspective around what, how does it help with my profit and engagement levels, turnover, all of that, which is all great. But I think at the same time, this is probably quite um, my empathy and probably a bit of sympathy coming out from my personality is we all share this world. We're all humans. Do you want to live in a space where there's some form of understanding, not acceptance, but some form of understanding? Mm. 
Are you confident that more and more people will genuinely adopt diversity and inclusion and actually see it through for the right reasons? I don't know right now. I'm quite skeptical mm. <laughs> about this. Even when I read, you know, for example, I have other fellow um, HR professionals and other people I know who gone who's gone through diversity and inclusion training, mandatory training in the business. First slide is diversity and inclusion is so important for our business. This is what you need to do. And they have very stereotypical examples. So think about a US company, you might have a person who's Mexican in a contact center. Um, or you might have a person who makes coffee and she's you know, a waitress actually says waitress, mm-hmm. <laughs> not a wait staff. Mm-hmm. So you kind of think about who's actually writing this content. The per- people who are writing DNI content, we have all our biases, but these are biases that are coming out. So for it to be successful, really, we also have to check our own biases that are conscious, unconscious, and those biases that we intentionally don't want to change and check that. And that's why people walk away from diversity and inclusion initiative going, I don't d- agree with it. It doesn't mm. work. And when you ask them why is, well, we tried, the person is different. They're not performing. And the thing and for me is that's nothing to do with diversity and inclusion. Yes, that person is different. End of the day, they still need to do the job and they're not. So that's a performance issue. Yeah. The other thing is um, thinking about diversity and inclusion would be, you know, you just really have to think about what does it mean for, for you and the business? Yeah. So I'm quite, I'm hopeful. <laughs> but I'm skeptical of how fast we're going to move and how much change it's going to create. So what about closing that gap between the skepticism and the, I guess, outcome, the hope of the outcome? Mm, yeah, so I thought about that too. <laughs> so a couple of points is um, takeaways for myself that I've learned from my journey is being curious and genuinely curious about different culture, taking the time to listen rather than hear. One thing I also learned, and I caught myself doing this just a few weeks ago again, is be mindful of the language we used. For example? I said, it's written and, and it's very clear it's black and white mm. without realizing, huh, I should not be using that term because there's a negative connotation and it's a painful connotation to it. Definitely don't focus DNI as a token effort. Walk away from conversations if it's a one-way dialogue. If the person's not ready to listen, if you see from the facial expressions, they're not ready. Just walk away. Focus efforts on on others who are. So it could be, you know, like yourself starting a podcast to give people platform to talk. Being on this podcast, for example, learning, researching, doing something in organization. Just do something, um, which means really take action. You don't need a title to be. I'm a leader. I'm doing this now. Or you've been charged with DNA. Everyone can make a change systemically don't wait for the next generation or someone else to deal with it if you think as you can make a difference do it encourage others to keep on their journey so i remember feeling extremely deflated one day from the dni initiative challenge that i got and i messaged a um, friend of mine and i said to her so she's a she's the founder of a leading diversity inclusion consultancy just a comment to say look i really appreciate you walking on this journey and I see what you're doing. It's hard. Continue it. I see you as an inspiration. And that really helps. That gave me some confidence and it gave her that confidence as well. And like what you said, no one's perfect. I'm no expert yet. We're all figuring life out. (laughs) 
Yeah, so just exactly. Figure it out. Yeah. That's really great to hear that you were giving your friend that encouragement mm. as well, because it can feel like such a lonely journey. Yes. And it's so easy to just be like, you know, screw it. Yeah. And it's so emotional. Very it's emotional. It's so personal. Do you also feel like sometimes you just keep talking and talking and talking and like no one is listening to you? That's what I mean. Everyone is so busy hearing noises yeah. and really we're just focused on listening to our own dialogue in our heads. Like, yeah. Is that person listening to me? Am I dressed appropriate? <laughs> this room is a bit cold. You know, all those kind of yeah. things. We're so, we're so busy being busy mm. in our own minds. We just need to pause and listen. Mm, for sure. Thank you for joining me and sharing about your experience and your thoughts and also your work in diversity and inclusion. Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up? I just want to make sure um, people who are listening just do something. If you feel any part of this conversation triggered something in you to go, huh, I wonder what that meant or, hey, that sounds like a good um talk to look at or, or this podcast, I might listen to another. Just do something. Yeah, definitely. And I love what you said before at the end about so many people just leave it to somebody else to fix, Mm -hmm. whereas the change starts with you right now in this moment. Exactly. You can't just expect somebody else to pick it up for you. So yeah, I love that message. Great. Thank you for listening to this episode. As always, please rate, review and share if you're enjoying this podcast. It really does help a lot to get these stories out there. And if you want to check out that TED Talk that Gigi mentioned about the myth of bringing your full authentic self to work, you'll find the link in the show notes.